0: Welcome to Episode 9 of the Sports Law Podcast coming from Blackstone Chambers with me, Nick DeMarco Casey. Today we shall be discussing the important and topical subject of disciplinary proceedings in sport. What are they? How do they differ from other legal proceedings? What top tips do our guests have for those preparing for a sports disciplinary proceeding? Of course, I should be asking all my guests how they ended up doing such interesting sports work. And finally, we shall be discussing what important developments we expect to see in this area in the future. So I'm delighted today to be joined by four great guests. Catherine Belloff is the Director of Legal, Governance and Business Partners at the British Horse Racing Authority, the BHA, where she's responsible for all aspects of the BHA's legal council, and corporate governance amongst other things. Previously in private practice, Catherine was a member of DLA's global sports media and entertainment team. And Catherine is also a chair and director of the British Association for Sport and the Law (BASL). Basel. Jeff Cunningham is Head of Legal Regulatory at the Football League or EFL. Like my other guest, Jeff's a good friend, and he might be described as a poacher turns gatekeeper because before his important role at the EFL, Jeff was in private practice acting on many big sports disciplinary cases, often against the regulator. And so it's great to have him here and give his experience of both sides of the fence. Alistair McHenry is head of sport at Tier Law, where he acts for governing bodies, clubs, players and athletes across regulatory, contractual, financial, disciplinary and selection issues. He's also a sports resolutions arbitrator, and he sits on various disciplinary panels that I'm sure he's going to tell us about. Like Catherine and I, he's a director of BASM. James Segan Casey is one of my excellent colleagues at Blackstone Chambers. Earlier this year, he was named as one of the Hot 100 Lawyers in the UK by The Lawyer magazine. And he's recognized by the directory as a leading advocate in as many as nine different practice areas. Too many for me to read out. But of course, one of them is sport, where he regularly appears in disciplinary hearings both for and against governing bodies. I've often appeared against James and even had him appear before me on one occasion in various sports disciplinaries, so I can reliably say he's one of the very best in the business. Let's start by considering the nature of disciplinary proceedings in sport. Can I start with you, James? How would you describe sports disciplinary proceedings? Do principles of fairness apply to them, and are they really legal proceedings? Can you go to court to challenge them?
1: Well, look, thanks, Nick, first of all, for your very kind words and for inviting me onto the podcast. In terms of defining what disciplinary proceedings might be, I think probably a working definition would be is any situation in which a governing body, a league or a club, seeks to exercise a jurisdiction to penalise any participant in a sport in some way. And that might be a classic governing body like the BHA. It might be a classic league organiser like the Football League. Equally, it could be an organisation that isn't part of a formal pyramid, but which has a disciplinary jurisdiction, something like the European Tour in golf, which has recently heard the cases against the golfers um, who had signed for live. I think it's worth also noting that it's not necessarily or always about things done on the pitch. Uh, There are, of course, all the financial regulatory cases that come up in a disciplinary context. Equally, there is conduct prejudicial to the game, which in lots of different sports has embraced quite a wide range of different things, including turning up to drug tests for uh, alleged recreational Drug use or not. So it's not just about things that happen on the pitch. In terms of whether the rules of fairness apply, I think plainly yes, either expressly under the rules or impliedly the courts will always read in a term that the athlete has to be dealt with fairly. Are they legal proceedings? Well, in the main, yes, I mean there are obviously there are loads of different definitions of what a legal proceeding might be. Uh, that there are all sorts of statutory definitions, but in the main, a tribunal established by contract between the parties will generally qualify. And especially since the Canaria case, lots of sports bodies have either retained or amended their rules so that either the whole disciplinary process, or at least the appeal stage, qualifies formally as an arbitration under the Arbitration Act 1996. And, for instance, the RFU, the EFL, both have rules that say that all stages are arbitral. Other bodies have rules that just say the decision is final, but which is supposed to connote that they're arbitral. Others, by contrast, are expressly not arbitral. So something like the FA has a provision in its disciplinary regulation saying that the process is formally not an arbitration, and and that's the same, actually, in in the European tour rules. And where that comes in is in relation to your last point, Nick, which is can you go to court to challenge them? The answer is almost always yes, but the grounds may vary. If it's an arbitration... then you're talking about a challenge under the Arbitration Act 1996. And depending on what the rules say, that might be very narrow indeed, because uh, you can exclude review on a point of law under Section 69 of the Arbitration Act. That is often the case in these rules. And that leaves you only with a challenge on grounds of lack of jurisdiction or a serious irregularity. Whereas if the process was not an arbitration... Then, then you will generally have Bradley and the Jockey Club supervisory review by the High Court, and that involves review on the kind of full panoply of public law uh, grounds. Uh, and I would add, finally, that there ought in every case to be the possibility of competition, law scrutiny of whatever decisions have been taken. There's a European case called Eco Swiss that says that even an arbitration with limited jurisdiction ought to be capable of being looked at for competition law.
0: Well, thanks for that. That was typically comprehensive. Just on that issue about arbitration or not arbitration, I remember asking the FA about this and why they have that provision, saying it's not an arbitration. And they gave one answer, which I thought was a quite good one, actually, and hadn't thought of before, which is if it is an arbitration, under the Arbitration Act the presumption is parties can get their costs back and it may be unfair to sports people and um, athletes who are charged with something and don't have many resources to have to pay costs. I don't know
1: what anyone in the panel thinks about that argument. It's an interesting one, um, certainly. I mean, even if that is presumptively the case, certainly in my experience that I've been in in lots of processes that formally are described as arbitrations but where there is no award of costs one way one way or another. So, Alistair,
0: practically in your experience, what are the main similarities, would you say, and, and differences between court processes and a sports disciplinary process?
2: Well, the, the similarities are fairly fundamental in nature. You, you have, um, more often than not, solicitors like me preparing the case. You have barristers like yourself and James presenting the case, um, you have a start and an end point. So you have, um, usually, you know, if it's if it's court proceedings, it would be commenced by a letter before action and a claim form. Uh, in disciplinary proceedings, it's a it's a, a notice of charge or a charge sheet or, or something akin to that. And and going all the way to the end point, you have the uh, you know a judge giving a um, a judgment, or you have a disciplinary disciplinary panel giving a um, a decision or some written reasons. Um, and then all the, all the procedural steps in between the start and end point are common to or typically are common to both procedures. So you'd have um, a set of directions, you would have disclosure, you would have the ability to make applications, witness statements, uh, submissions, cross-examination of witnesses and, and, and usually ending with a hearing. Um, so those are, those are the, the similarities or the themes running through, through running through both. The differences um, are probably slightly more nuanced than than that. They are, to my to my mind, there's there's four or perhaps five key ones. The first one is 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 the hearing itself. Um, so disciplinary proceedings are in private, um, which which is is a complete contrast to court proceedings. You 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 know in in theory any court proceeding in the in the county courts or the high courts you can go. And, and look at the um, look at the papers or, or or turn up to the hearing and, and sit in the public gallery. That isn't the case with um, disciplinary proceedings. You also don't have judges typically sitting on, on uh, disciplinary proceedings. You have um, the I suppose industry experts, usually with legal expertise, but they they all always have a specific knowledge of the sport. So that, you know, you would you would probably call them arbitrators, but they're not they're not judges in the same way that you would be before um, in a court. Um, Then there's the location. I mean, it's it's probably an often overlooked thing, but court proceedings are in courts and disciplinary disciplinary proceedings are usually in hearing centres, which are less formal, perhaps less daunting than, than a court without the sort of same kind of um, traditions. But it, 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 nonetheless, it's still a formal setting, but but very different to, to being in a court. Um, the second main difference is the context of the sport. Now, uh, the context of the sport, for me, pervades everything in a hearing. You have um, the arbitrators have to work within the rules, the specific set of rules, whichever sport it is, and, and within those, or allied to those rules, there will be precedents, specific case precedents for those sports. There will be sanctioning guidelines, usually, or guidelines to follow for, for, for those arbitrators. So again, that that makes it a more specific type of proceeding than, than, than in the court. Um, the third one is, is is speed, and speed of access to, to, to justice. It's if you try to if you make an application in, in the courts or if you try and get a, um, a listing, say for a trial in the courts, it's just going to take longer because you you are effectively confined to court working hours. There's always a layer of administration to go through. Um, it doesn't go straight to a judge; it will go to a, a clerk first, and then be passed to a judge. Whereas in disciplinary proceedings, the access to the arbitrators—if you know—if you, know, you want to make an application, for example, you would make it direct to those arbitrators. So you you would get it you would get it done quicker, and th- and they're not constrained by court sitting time, So you'll often see hearings in disciplinary um, cases being held or starting at weekends or in the evenings, and, and 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 because speed is often of the essence, then it's important to get um, to get those hearings done quickly um, the, other, the other the final point of difference I think is, is costs and, and we've just discussed that I think it's there isn't the same level of scrutiny of, of costs typically in, in, in arbitrations and disciplinary proceedings. you wouldn't have to say do a, a cost estimate which you have to do in the courts you wouldn't have to do they, they tend not to go to assessment detailed assessment at the end and, and that's probably a, a byproduct of them being private in nature. Um, the, fi- the final point, I think, is, is, is and this is, is something which is kind of changing, and it's, it's access to judgments. It's not always, it's, it's, it's a bit more inconsistent in sport that you um, don't always have access to the judgments. They're certainly not as searchable or as findable as they are um, in the courts where you would, you would simply search on, on Westlaw or Lawtel.
3: Well, on that point, the EFL probably are the exception to that because we. We kind of are championing the idea of being a a transparent regulator where our decisions are published and that hasn't been something that's always been the case but in recent years that is and all of our agreed decisions or cases that have gone through to an arbitration hearing are searchable and that now is a very um, important part of our policy and will continue to be i mean the regulation i think actually says that those decisions will be published unless otherwise agreed. And I don't yet know an example where it hasn't been published.
0: I think that that is important. The EFL and the FA now do that and do searchable uh, databases of decisions, whereas the Premier League are the opposite uh, so far as that's concerned. But um, picking up on one thing you said, Alistair, and Catherine, you may have a view on this as well. Uh, you said that disciplinary proceedings are in private and i know that that is the presumption and some rules provide for it but um certainly my view is that uh, in many cases where there's a public interest they ought not to be in private they ought to be in public and we recently won that argument in the ecb azim rafiq case and one of the things we looked at in that was the bha who in fact do provide for certain Hearings to be in public is—is is that right, Catherine?
4: Yeah, that's right. So, so under our rules, the default position is that our hearings will be in public, not literally meaning that a man or woman on the street can turn up, but the media can apply for access. They're given access by Zoom, um, and now, except in you know pretty limited cases, so you know safeguarding cases or if there's a vulnerable witness, you might have part of a hearing in private. But otherwise, um, they are in public. And actually, it's been that way in racing for, for quite a long time. I mean, certainly um, going back to 2009 and possibly even before that, because I found records of the jockey club debating it in 1991 after the Aga Khan case. Um, so, it, you know, it, it, it's certainly been our default for, for quite and some time. And what's the
0: reason for that?
4: Well, I mean, in the context of the Aga Khan case, um, it, it appears to have come up in the context of um, inaccurate media reporting and a desire to get a, you know, an open, accurate set of facts into the public domain rather than have media speculation and for that to be um, inaccurate. Um, you know, more recently, it's really just about transparency um, and wanting to demystify the disciplinary process. Um, similarly, to, to, to make sure that the you know the reporting of it is as accurate as it can be.
0: I think we're going to touch on on this subject again later on. But can I ask you also, Catherine, because you've essentially had to design the whole code for BHA judicial proceedings. What what do you see as the main objectives and principles that you considered necessary in designing that code?
4: So just by way a very brief overview, the BHA has a three tiered disciplinary system that starts with the stewards on the race course holding inquiries in between races if the previous race involved a potential breach of the rules of racing and then decisions of the stewards can be appealed to the independent disciplinary panel which will hold a de novo hearing and then separately matters that don't originate on the race course so for example betting corruption or anti-doping can be appealed from the independent disciplinary panel to an appeal board stage. So it has those three tiers. In terms of the current framework and how that came to be, um, we commissioned an independently-led review of the whole framework back in 2016. It was led by Christopher Quinlan, KC, a leading expert in the field. And the objectives that we set ourselves going into that review was that the framework and the structure should be practical, legally robust... Um, And perhaps most importantly, generate greater confidence among the sports participants in the the way that that system worked. That review came up with 24 recommendations. The BHA board accepted them all. We spent 18 months or so after that introducing the new rules and guidelines to implement them. Uh, And then since then, we've been essentially sort of fine tuning the process in particular, to take account of the particular challenges of holding disciplinary challenges, uh, disciplinary processes during the the pandemic. And I won't go through everything we changed, but just to kind of draw out some particular um, threads, the objective of making it practical for participants was something that we tried to embed throughout the structure. So making the process and access to the process and understanding the process as straightforward as possible for participants who are subject to it. We'd receive feedback that participants were concerned about inequality of arms. So one thing we introduced was an arrangement with sport resolutions, whereby unrepresented participants would have access to the sport resolutions pro bono panel. We also introduced a fast track process for minor breaches of the rules. So the independent judicial panel chair deals with those on the papers. There's an agreed sanction. It takes the burden off the panel it removes the uncertainty for the participant of having to prepare for a hearing and, and not knowing what the outcome um, might be. And just to put that in context, last year, the independent judicial panel chair heard 70 fast track cases. So the impact on the overall system is, is really quite significant. Um, Rough, meant- roughly,
0: how does that compare to Non-fast-track cases.
4: So 100, 110 in total. Right. So, you know, it really yeah. is is quite a significant proportion yeah. of, of the overall total. And certainly pre-pandemic, even those what are now fast-track cases would have involved a panel and the participants coming to London, being there in person, you know, inevitably at least half half a day of time. Like many sports, we moved to virtual hearings during the pandemic it's not always easy because quite a lot of the cases our panel hears involve watching race footage from multiple angles. Historically, we would have put that up on a, on a big screen. Um, they were now having to do it from home, but it has worked and it's you know, developed you know, really quite significant benefits, particularly if you're a jockey and you don't have to take a day out to go to London. You don't have to miss a day's ride. Um, that's really quite significant. That said, we're now seeing a bit of a swing back towards hearings in person, particularly where you've got a lot of witness evidence. Um, And then just touching on the kind of greater confidence in the process point, um, one of Christopher Quinlan's recommendations was that we should have this independent judicial panel chair and that that person would be responsible for recruiting all the panel members and then selecting the panel members for, for individual hearings and also designing and um, delivering training to them. And so it took the BHA out of that process beyond the the funding and the administrative support. And I think that really helps to give participants assurance that they and the BHA are being treated as equal parties um, before the panel. And the final point I was gonna mention was was the media access that that, that we've already um, touched on, which again, I think is key to that generating greater confidence in the process it takes a bit of the mystification out of it and um you know again you know make sure that media reporting you know at least is, is largely accurate
0: and you're leading the way in that as a sport
4: yeah I mean it, 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 it is quite surprising to me that mm. that not more um disciplinary hearings are held in public and you know, I wonder whether um, you know the, the success, obviously, that you've had in the the cricket Discipline commission case, is going to be a catalyst for more disciplinary proceedings to be held in public. And I certainly think that would be a positive step.
0: Great, um, Jeff. As you already touched upon, that the football league's disciplinary process has developed immensely over the last few years. It's now got a pretty sophisticated structure. Can you explain that structure briefly to our listeners and? and what the core principles underpinning it are.
3: Yeah, sure. I'll deal with the structure first. So um, I suppose the structure is split into two. Um, you've got those minor breaches of regulations, such as I don't know, the time in which you need to submit a team sheet before a fixture. And those those sort of um, breaches of the regulations are, are dealt with in, in, a, in a list of regulations that are dealt with under a fixed fine. And so there's no need to go from the EFL's point of view to an arbitration, to determine them as a quick, fast-track procedure, which essentially means that the, the league will give you a fixed fine for those misdemeanours. Um, and they're, they're dealt with essentially as strict liability offences. Um, and then you've got then the more serious breaches uh, or, or other breaches that aren't on that list. And those often, in every case, will start with an investigation, And that's not just an investigation conducted by lawyers at the EFL but also a very experienced governance team. And they will uh, meticulously go through uh, disclosure that they require from uh, the clubs or the uh, directors of those clubs involved, and ultimately uh, will lead to an interview process where, again, before the league. any charges it fully conducts an investigation including the interview to establish whether or not the club has indeed breached the regulation that it's not a full-gone conclusion just because they're investigating that it will lead to a charge um, and i'm sure there are many that do not um, with good reason but then ultimately those cases that where the evidence provides that a charge is appropriate then the, the league will charge uh, the club or the directors of the club in question And there's a, as you say, a very sophisticated uh, procedure set out in Section 8 of the handbook, which deals with um, sending those cases to an independent uh, disciplinary commission. Uh, I say independent because, again, like Catherine's alluded to, um, regulators have become um, very aware of the need to separate uh, the arbitrators and the secretarial services that are involved in assisting them. From the leagues or the regulators involved. I think it's a really important step that many regulators have taken, and the EFL included. Um, And again, sports resolution on behalf of the EFL are the party that provide both the arbitrators, but also the secretary of services in supporting them. And they also, um, very importantly, are the people that decide those cases. So the EFL has very very limited involvement, well, equal. Involvement in the appointment of the arbitrators as the uh, party being prosecuted, uh, which is again a very important establishment of a a procedure for us, Um, and the process thereafter is again dealt with in our regulations. But there is a wide scope of powers that the arbitrators have available to them to apply sanctions if there are, if there is a relevant sanction required in that particular case, and again the League is not involved in the process of deciding what sanction is appropriate, it is absolutely the arbitrator who's independent who gets to decide that. Uh, Likewise, there's often some confusion as to, for for people maybe not so closely linked with the um, legal disciplinary processes as as we all are in this room, Uh, but but fans often confuse board members of the EFL as being people who, A, decide these disputes, B, decide even when they become necessary to prosecute and that absolutely is not the case it's um that the board has no involvement in the decision or uh, any sanction involved of, of any charges and ultimately has no involvement um practically in the decision of, of whether charges are brought and that's mainly the executive who decide that with some advice from now myself um as to the core principles um I think the, uh, I mean, the overriding objective from the civil procedure rules kind of pervades into our rules too. So things like proportionality, uh, having matters dealt with expeditiously and fairly, and 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 again, independently decided by arbitrators is a core principle that underpins our our regulations. But I think I suppose more than that, it it is there. They're there to protect, essentially, the game, the integrity of the game. Um, they are. Private and confidential until the point in which the decision is published in our rules, and I think there's good reason for that because it, we don't we don't want uh, information to be leaked, which is just totally inaccurate or or inappropriate to be leaked before matters are decided. And the clubs and the league have the knowledge that in our rules, once a case is decided, it, it will be published. So um, that I think has actually helped the number of cases where. Um, parties may th- decide that leaking uh, the fact that those proceedings are confidential out into the press. Um, I think it actually reduces that risk, and I think that other regulators who don't currently publish their decisions might also want to take a look at whether they should do so too.
2: Was there a catalyst, Jeff, for for take the EFL changing its stance on publishing its decisions?
3: I, I think the EFL just felt there was there was no good reason to not want to publish its decisions. Um, I think other regulators sometimes feel that it has a damaging impact on brand and, therefore, commercial uh, equity in their brand. Uh, but, I, but I don't think that that's actually the case for us. And we, our board definitely don't feel that way. Um, we feel the opposite. We think that actually being a, a, a transparent regulator um, means that you can see that the regulator is doing its job. It's prosecuting cases that need to be. Uh, the clubs are being dealt with fairly and again transparently and sanctions are being applied consistently. And um, I think that therefore, in, in our view, promotes um, uh, trust and confidence in your brand and therefore the equity that's in it. Well,
0: thanks very much all four of you for that. That gives us a really good insight into the sort of legal framework of disciplinary proceedings. I want to get a bit more practical now and deal with what actually goes on the sort of top tips that you have if you're preparing for a disciplinary proceeding. So Alastair, someone you've acted for clubs and individuals before in these panels. You now sit on these panels and see people presenting cases before you. What 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 would you say are the top tips a party should take into account? Well, I think... Um fairly obvious but uh, you
2: know and this isn't just out of self-interest but I would I would always say to take legal advice um, from from the off and 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 I would do that as soon as possible it's it's far easier to if, if cost is the concern then it's far far easier to control legal costs than it is to control strategy um, from from the from the outset so so that's got to be point one um, I think you've got to be realistic as well um, often You'll see um, individuals or clubs charged, and and they they just try and defend it in an in an unrealistic way, or um, in a way that isn't particularly helpful. I, I think I would always say to 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 stay within your station, to to engage with likely sanctions if if sanctions are um, are likely, um, and and to be cooperative. You know, it's it's it's. <laughs> is it's difficult in litigation because it's um it's it's often confrontational, it can often be aggressive, but I I don't think it generally works and um I think to be to be unreasonable, to be unco- uncooperative does not play well with um with arbitrators or decision makers and, and, and it and it you know it, it just doesn't doesn't get you where t- to where you need to be. Um the, o- the other th- the other thing I would um Urge is, is is a kind of risk and again it's something that's often lost in in the heat of the battle but uh, a sort of healthy respect for the process for the for the opponent whether it's the whether it's the governing body charging you you've, you've got to try and engage with where their position is and and what their perspective is what their perhaps wider interests are that that you know that their ultimate goal is to protect the sport and the integrity of the sport so so to try and understand the position, the, the opposing position, I think, puts you in a in a in a better place to, to put forward your case.
0: Jeff, from the standpoint of the regulator, um, perhaps also in your previous life, from the standpoint of taking on the regulator, uh, what are the key things um, from the investigation onwards that you think are important for preparing for these types of cases? Yeah, thanks,
3: Nick. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have been on both sides of of the argument, and um, it is interesting kind of with the hindsight that I've now got of being at the EFL, um, to see both those sides. It's, it's, I think Alistair's point is really important, is that I think it is important for clubs to understand and respect that the regulator's there to do its job. It's just to make sure that the rules are applied fairly consistently to all clubs. And <coughs> after the case is finished, there has to be a continued relationship between club and regulator and so, as in other forms of litigation, where it becomes almost like war in in this setting, I think clubs need to also maybe step back from it for for a second and actually understand the long term view of this and this is just one case in a long relationship that, that club's going to have with a regulator um but in terms of the key things from Standpoint of the uh, regulator. I mean, investigations are a crucial part of, of of any charge that's brought, and they're they're conducted properly uh, with careful consideration, and uh, and time is spent and, and lots of effort in in conducting them in that way. Um, in terms of the key things that I think people need to be aware of in terms of preparing for them, is that firstly the Parties that are attending the, the interviews, um, they have a, obviously an obligation of, to the league and, and, and to the other member clubs to act in good faith. And so you've got to, uh, you've got to put maximum effort into your preparation when attending those interviews. It, that, that It isn't good enough to attend and essentially just be ignorant to the facts of, of a case. You've got to put some effort in, and as the regulator does, to make sure that you're prepared for them. Um, and if, if you do so, that can, oft- that can often alleviate, a, a, need to maybe bring a charge, but secondly, if you conduct an investigation properly, it's always with the hope, in some cases, that you can apply Regulation 86 and get to an agreed decision, so that you don't need to go through the process of an arbitration if it's possible for the parties to come together and agree a way forward. And so I think... That's a really interesting development in our regulations, and I think that's, again, something that other regulators may, may also want to consider. You've had a lot more of those agreed decisions now, haven't you? Exactly, yeah. and, and again, that they are published too, so, yeah. so it's not as if um, clubs or um, fans think that the EFL are reaching consistent conclusions to cases just because they go through the agreed decision process. It's actually the opposite. It actually helps set the standard.
0: Can I just speak up for the poor accused for a moment? Because I'm feeling slightly outnumbered here by those uh, reminding us to show appropriate respect for the regulator, which of course we ought to, but as someone who does often um, act for those accused in these sorts of proceedings, I think there is another danger on the other side, and it's what I describe as a sort of policeman's mentality that sometimes regulators and those lawyers who often act for regulators can develop. It's a sort of mentality that, you know, we make the rules, we make the laws, uh, you're there to obey them, this is the structure, we do the structure, don't start asking for things that no one's asked for before. That sort of mentality, which is a natural mentality that develops when one becomes institutionalised or works for an institution with the powers, the monopolistic powers a regulator has. And I think it's always as important that those acting, as I'm sure all of you, you do, and knowing you well, for the regulator reminds themselves of that in, in their sensitivity to the accused. So having made my rant Catherine, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you um, no doubt have many war stories from the world of horse racing. Can you tell us about some of the things that can go wrong Some of the things parties should avoid in disciplinary hearings?
4: I can. I wouldn't want to give you an (laughs) itemised list of the things that the BHA could or should have done better. But to speak a bit more generally, um, these are sort of three of the challenges that I've seen sports regulators face in disciplinary proceedings. So the first, and and this goes to the kind of independence theme, um, is that the regulator or the disciplinary body needs a really robust process for disciplinary panel members to record and declare any conflicts of interest and for the parties to be able to raise legitimate objections to the panel members selected to avoid a process becoming tainted by allegations of apparent bias and that is something the BHA faced um many years ago now before the the reforms I spoke about um, took place but we were involved in a case in which a trainer alleged apparent bias in relation to the disciplinary panel that had heard uh, his case. it went to an appeal board the appeal board agreed with his submissions on that point and they quashed the decision and it had to be sent back for a fresh disciplinary panel hearing um, so that's a cautionary tale and a piece of advice about having that robust mm. process in place. Secondly, I think it's really important for the regulator to have a clear protocol in place in respect to confidential documents and think about how documents that are generated and transmitted and exchanged as part of the disciplinary process are going to be protected and, and stored. I think disciplinary proceedings generally can be plagued by leaks or disclosure of confidential documents or information to the media. And that has the potential to undermine confidence in the process and also to divert the regulator's resources from running the case to then dealing with a media storm or perhaps even worse, dealing with the ICO. And if there's a really serious leak, then it can be necessary to launch an independent leak inquiry, you know, if only to establish that it didn't come from the regulator. And I've never known a leak inquiry that is established with any degree of certainty where the leak came from. So it can be extremely expensive for very little gain. And so in everybody's interest in the process to be to be really careful with, with confidential documents. And thirdly, I think there's the issue of resources and, and where to focus them. Sports regulators, particularly domestically, all have limited resources, limited powers. It simply isn't possible to follow every investigatory lead or piece of intelligence or bring every alleged or suspected breach of the rules to the point of charge or, or a disciplinary hearing we all have to decide how we're going to allocate our resources at every stage of the process whether that's the investigation charge case preparation hearing and inevitably the media or other commentators Again, have strong views about um, whether we've got that right so as a sports regulator you need a strategy and a set of objectives for determining which cases you want to prioritize
0: great thanks james um, you regularly appear on. I think you still. It's fair to say either side. Yeah, yeah. I think mean, it's fair to say either side. Um, what's your top three tips? Hmm.
1: So I think the the same basic principles of doing a good job for your client apply as in any case. So knowing the case inside out, selecting a nice, clear, simple set of points, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think that we take that for granted. But if we're asking ourselves about sports disciplinary proceedings in particular, then I think the tips would be these. First of all, understand really well and carefully the nature of the jurisdiction that you're in and the procedural rules that are being applied. And that matters because of a point that Alistair touched on earlier. This is not a court process. So the rules vary from process to process. And so you need to be asking yourself at the outset, what powers does this body have? What are the outcomes that are, in principle, available under the rules? Critically, sometimes, what are the rules of evidence? Because very often, the disciplinary rules will say something along the lines that there are no rules of evidence at all. And that's obviously a really important thing for any, uh, anybody arguing a case in that context to be aware of. So that, that can be really important. So the first point, understand carefully the jurisdiction you're in. Second of all, and this is perhaps an odd point for a KC to be making, but think really carefully about any technical legal points that you're going to take. Because in reality, panels in disciplinary cases tend to want to get to the right substantive outcome in the case before them. And they don't, in my experience, tend much to like uh, barristers, uh, trying to put legal hurdles in the way of panels coming to the right decision on the substance. And they'd far rather, most of the time, hear, be hearing directly from the athletes uh, rather than their barrister. So, as I say, an odd point for me to be making, but I think it is an important one. And then thirdly, critically, don't be too rigid in terms of your uh, plan for the hearing because precisely because this is not the High Court and things don't run like a High Court trial, in reality, anything can happen. And uh, I think back to a UEFA case I did a few years ago where, with no notice at all, uh, the other side called a witness by video link, uh, no notice of what the witness would be saying, no witness statement, no notice they were going to be involved until I was just told... Here's the witness. And, of course, you then have examination in chief and you have to cross-examine somebody whose evidence you've only just heard and you didn't didn't know was going to be appearing at all. And things like that can just happen. And so whatever plan you've got, it, it probably won't survive much contact with the enemy. Well, that's
0: great. Thanks for that, um, James. So one of the things that uh, listeners to the podcast really enjoy hearing is about your own personal stories. You might take it for granted, but you're all in really exciting interesting jobs so jeff you're now head of legal at the efl regulatory department you're overseeing the do's and don'ts of 72 different competing football clubs in our biggest game often under acute media spotlight and fans commenting on every move the efl does on twitter How did you end up in this exciting
3: role? Rather interestingly, I I never set out to be a sports lawyer or to even practice in the sports industry at all. I set out, like another colleague in the room, to be an insolvency lawyer and uh, really enjoyed being an insolvency lawyer until my former boss, David Hinchcliffe at Walker-Morris, decided it might be a good idea if I help him on a case. And he never really let me go. And I continued doing sports work, the rest of the six years that i spent there and um, loved it i mean essentially that's the reason i do it is that i actually enjoy what i do and uh, <laughs> that helps um the i mean from there I, I i moved and spread my wings to become the head of legal at uh, uk top 50 firm freeths and i set up a successful sports practice there uh we had a, a good team we were very quickly recognized in legal 500 uh, within 18 months of, of commencing our practice uh, and we acted from Premier League clubs down to League Two clubs and uh, like Alistair in the room I spent my career uh, until joining the EFL acting for clubs and, um, and and loved every minute doing so uh, but then uh, I, I, and when I did I, I, I mean I acted on some public cases I'm able to speak about I mean I acted for for example the administrators of Derby County on the Uh, deduction of the 12 points and the appeal of that process. I acted for um, someone might be close to your heart Nick, a a recent minority purchaser of a stake of QPR. Um, And and those were the types of things that in practice I was dealing with quite regularly uh, as well as litigation uh, generally in the sport. Uh, I acted for other sports as well, so I acted for athletes, boxers like Amir Khan, Josh Warrington, Chris Eubank Jr. So I had a really varied career and I really enjoyed that. Um, but then I got a tap on the shoulder um, from Nick Craig uh, at the EFL and I was invited to kindly come and join him and his team and and try and move things forward at the EFL in our regulatory team. And um, I've only been there for six weeks so far. It certainly has been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Probably already done uh, 600 cases. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and it's, it's going to be a really exciting time of my next chapter in my career.
0: Great. Thank you, James. Now, I know you do lots of other interesting work as a KC outside of sport, but sport's one of the areas you're known in. So what do you like about doing it, and how did you get to develop your practice in it?
1: Well, I think one has to start with the fact that I just find the subject matter intrinsically interesting. I'm pretty much renowned in my household for being enthusiastic Ah. about every sport going you know if there is tractor racing on BT Sport 7 I will have it on at least in the background Um, but it is it is also the legal variety that you get with sports law because any one case can have contract law or public law or competition law employment law all manner of different areas all of which you need to think about and mold together uh, in order to work your way through the case, and if I think about cases that um, that you and I have been involved in uh, against each other, Nick, in mean, the Derby case, we had a very uh, esoteric point of accountancy practice about amortisation. We had the vexed question of how you value a stadium, mm. um, and we had some quite complicated points of land law in the Sheffield case. You know, it's 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 that kind of variety that I. That i find interesting in terms of how i got into the area well i mean it's, it's in a sense it's the kind of story of this podcast because i i i started off doing disciplinary cases for the rfu way back when about 2007 probably and that entailed spending lots of evenings this was this was before the uh, trend that Catherine's already described of these hearings moving to zoom hearings so you know, I, I've probably been to pretty much every Holiday Inn uh, in England and you you would be dealing with multiple disciplinary cases in the course of an evening. You know, it would be biting, gouging, uh, nefarious scrummaging techniques, etc., cetera, et cetera. Uh, So you start out with that and then gradually got into the bigger... Regulatory cases like the Alejandro Forlan case, where I was for the FA and you were for QPR, Nick, on, on, on opposite sides of the fence again, and then work my way into the financial fair play cases and kind of it kind of went from there. I'm obviously very fortunate to be practicing in these chambers with so many brilliant uh, sports lawyers around me, but it's a sort of classic progression from your smaller cases up to the larger ones.
0: Great, Catherine. You've got a huge responsibility at the BHA overseeing governance and disciplinary in, in not, not only one of the country's biggest, but also often most controversial sports. Things like betting and doping and animal cruelty coming up. H- how did you get there and, and what are the ups and downs of your work compared to private practice where, where you were previously?
4: I trained at a magic circle firm and I qualified into the litigation Team. The, the firm didn't have a, a sports practice, but I was lucky enough to work for an insurance litigator who was also a court of arbitration for sport arbitrator, more or less as a, as a hobby on the side of his uh, litigation practice. And he let me review the papers for the cases that he heard and occasionally go to Lausanne with him and see it playing out. And that really kind of solidified my desire to become a sports lawyer. So I moved from there to Denton Wilds Act, which at the time had the leading sports practice in London, and then very quickly after that, we all moved together to to DLA Piper, and I spent 10 years in the media and sport team there, principally working on IP litigation for sports rights owners, including the Premier League on its very long-running case against suppliers of non-UK decoder cards to UK pubs, and also regulatory and disciplinary cases in athletics and rugby and cricket and football. Um, in terms of moving in-house to the BHA, it was in part a desire to be closer to the action, in part a bit of work-life rebalancing. I had a young family by that point, and drafting witness statements and doing disclosure exercises in the middle of the night was becoming you know, more of a challenge and, and less of what I wanted to be doing. I knew very little about horse racing I'd acted for the Racecourse association in in media rights litigation alongside one of your um, most eminent chambers colleagues Ian Mill Casey and I'd done some work for the BHA uh, and I'd enjoyed lots of days out of the races but I had no technical racing expertise but one of the first pieces of advice I was given by uh, my first boss was that governing bodies in his words don't need fans in suits so it's incredibly important to to learn your client's business but your legal toolkit is more important than your sporting knowledge and I had that kind of ringing in my ears when I applied for the role at the BHA in terms of day-to-day it's very different to private practice so my experience of, of being a litigator in private practice was real kind of peaks and troughs you can spend weeks on end working until the middle of the night when you're in trial or preparing for a trial, and then that finishes and suddenly you have very little to do because the next big thing has yet to come along. In contrast, the BHA is incredibly busy every day. We have fixtures on virtually every day of the year, uh, around 1,450 fixtures a year. There's no shutdown, there's no off-season, so you have no time to to prepare or or reflect. So it's incredibly fast-paced. And it's incredibly exciting to work in a sport with elite athletes, horses, and then the betting element. You mentioned it, which is inextricably linked to racing. And I like, you know, working with with colleagues who are not all lawyers, with no disrespect to anybody <laughs> in the room, but to work with alongside vets and medics and you know people from um, you know a huge variety of professions is really exciting.
0: Mm. So, Alistair, tell us about your journey because you you now have set up and run a a sports law department in in your new firm. Uh, just to pick up on something Jeff said, I didn't
2: set out to be an insolvency lawyer. I don't think there's yeah. any. I don't think there's any That's children. Anyone. Well, exactly. I don't think there's any children in the world whose ambition it is to, when they grow up yeah. to be an insolvency lawyer. It was mine. <laughs> um, but uh, Jeff's right that I qualified as as primarily as an insolvency lawyer. I um. I think it, I can trace it back to, um, I was doing uh, doing an English Masters in 2005 and I did a vacation placement at Walker Morris, um, which is the firm I, I got my training contract with. And I had um, a week in the, what was called the finance litigation team, which, which became the sports team. But um, one of your, one of the guests on a previous podcast, Ben Mansford, was my Supervisor that week, and but Ben's and, now chief executive of Blackpool. That's right, and um, he must have impressed me, or wowed me, or or, or sowed a seed in any event that um, meant that I was uh, sort of destined to, to come back to that department when I was a when I was a trainee. So, um, so that's what I did, and um, qualified in two thousand nine at Walker Morris, and we what we did at the time, it started out as an insolvency team. It was um the reason it kind of transitioned into a sports team was was fairly straightforward in that we would go in advising the office holders whether it be the administrators or the liquidators and there was a, there was a spate of insolvencies of football clubs around that time um Luton Town was that was the one that I dealt with in in my seat when I was when I was training but you so you'd you'd effectively go in advising the office holders and come out advising newco and and the new owners and and so um develop and build a sports commercial sports practice away from away from the um the insolvency part um yeah I mean I was immediately drawn to that um because uh I love sport it's it's as simple as that It's, it's a passion it always has been um it's quite I'm quite happy just doing that in my spare time reading about it playing it not so much playing it anymore but um it that makes it so much more interesting for me uh, as a job and um so i was at walker morris for uh nearly 15 years to so move through the ranks walker morris um and and paths happily crossed with jeff uh, for several of those years um so we had some famous famous triumphs together so um which will be uh which we can reminisce about later but yeah it, uh, the the reason i've um or th- i moved uh the about a year ago now, to um, a new firm in Leeds called Tier, um, the idea being I was essentially offered the opportunity to set up a new sports practice at what is a new law firm in Leeds, and, and to try and build um, from the ground up. So that was it was too good an opportunity to to turn down. Really, it was a, it was a a challenge um, that I was ready for, and um, yeah, it's uh, no so far so
0: good. Great. Thank you. Well, finally, I want to hear all of your thoughts about the interesting developments we expect to see in sports disciplinary matters uh, over the next uh, year or so. So starting with you, Catherine, what, what do you think the important developments or cases in this space might be?
4: I know you're going to turn the, to the Manchester City case later. So I will... Highlight the allegations of racism that are shortly due to be heard by the ECB's Independent Cricket Discipline Commission, which we've already touched on it in the context of public hearings. Um, these proceedings in relation to Yorkshire County Cricket Club and seven individuals. These charges all arise from alleged breaches of ECB Directive 3.3, uh, which provides no participant may conduct themselves in a manner or do any act or omission at any time which is improper or which may be prejudicial to the interests of cricket, or which may bring the ECB, the game of cricket, or any cricketer or group of cricketers into disrepute. When the charges were announced, the names of those involved weren't cited, but they've obviously since been published in the media or or made public through the, the DCMS Select Committee evidence. Of the seven individuals whose cases are to be considered, it appears at the moment as if only one will attend and present A defence, the others either having admitted the charges or or amended versions of the charges or withdrawn from the process, uh, stating that they don't believe that the Independent Cricket Discipline Commission process is fair and citing fears that they're going to be scapegoated. We've already touched on one of the most controversial aspects of of this case, which is that, thanks to your efforts, Nick, it's going to be held uh, in public And in terms of future developments, I hope that's uh, a trend that is going to continue, if not uh, this year, then um, soon into the future. Finally, in terms of general trends, I would expect that we'll continue to see a rise in safeguarding cases and cases concerning the conduct of sports participants towards each other. Certainly in racing in the past few years, we've seen a decline in betting corruption cases, and a rise in safeguarding and general athlete welfare cases which look set to continue. For our part, we've recently launched an industry, Code of Conduct, which establishes a set of standards aimed at protecting the values of horse racing, making racing a great place to work based on a culture of respect. And this is backed by a set of procedures and penalties that enable us to take disciplinary action for specific breaches, rather than relying on the conduct prejudicial catch-all that that we previously had to
0: great thanks alistair i think i can ask you about the manchester city case that uh, catherine just mentioned because like me you might not directly be involved in it at least yet um what do you think we might see in that case and learn from that um
2: well it's it's difficult to predict at this very very early stage. It's it's I think it's going to be um, almost certainly very long and very hard fought and very expensive. Um, I mean, the, the first thing that kind of jumps out at me at seeing these charges, um, you know, lots of those charges date a long long date back a long long time. So I think two thousand nine is the first charge that they they have. I mean that is. By any analysis a very very long time ago and and there's just there's, it, it just feels like there's the sense of immediacy and relevance to a lot of these charges has gone and and a lot of the um the impetus for the for the charges it, these are it, it's, it feels too late and and um there'll be i'm sure very good reasons as to why the charges have been issued now um Potentially, some of them are political, but it feels to me like they some of these charges could have come sooner. I don't know why they couldn't have potentially issued a first batch two years ago. Say what? What we're left with is um, you know a, a, a range of offences over over a long, long period of time. But by the time this all gets resolved, it's going to be you know potentially a couple more years down the line, and we're going to be left with a damaged product. That's 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 at the heart of this. The the, the Premier League's brand is will be damaged by this and, and you'll have, you know, six at least six Premier League titles which you know will have an asterisk next to them. Not that I don't think Man City will, will care one jot about that and, and probably no one else will because it'll be just too <laughs> it'll be just too too
0: long ago. Do you think there's prospect of a points deduction, relegation, expulsion? I just don't think it matters. You know, it it, it
2: it maybe, yeah, maybe they'll get relegated. Maybe they'll get 12 points deducted. Um, maybe they'll have a season in the Championship and come straight back up. Juventus had that. I can't remember when that was, eight or nine years ago. A year in Serie B and came straight back up and won the league. It, it, it's kind of, it's too late. The horses... the Rangers
0: in, in Scotland yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, Saracens and the yes. rugby, yeah.
2: The, I mean, the horse hasn't just bolted, but it's, it's died of old age by the time this is going to get resolved. It's um, that, that's from and that's from an aggrieved Liverpool fan who's been denied three <laughs> titles. <but laughs> Potential. So, so point, that to,
3: <laughs> point that to one side, Alice, and, and your love for Liverpool. But I mean, I suppose a question for you on this is: is I mean, Do you think there's a there's an arbitration panel that will decide these one hundred charges, which is an enormous number? And I agree with you that the there are going to be some real points raised from both parties as to the reasons as to the delay to some of those charges. But the arbitrator has the opportunity now, Mm -hmm. with knowledge of this case, to strip and probably compartmentalize those charges that are capable of being dealt with quickly and those that maybe aren't. And a way to deal with that potentially could be to direct that certain charges are dealt with separately or quickly so that it doesn't become irrelevant to to either the brand or to the game. Because I think at the heart of this, it's about protecting the integrity of the game, isn't it? And creating a level playing field for all clubs in that, in that league. And I think that might be a really good way of maybe dealing with that issue that you've eloquently raised.
0: Maybe I can come in on that, Jeff, because one of the um, fights I think James and I have had in some of the cases uh, in the EFL is it, when you've had past breaches let's say in a season two years ago, and the sanction might be a points deduction, when should you have it? And uh, it, it's often a difficult argument because I think the, the sanctioning guidelines the Football League has about um, profit and sustainability rules, for example, suggests that you should have the points deduction in the season after the breach which makes sense in a a way because that's probably the earliest you can determine it and it's close enough to the advantage. But when the breach might have been, you know, four or five years ago, for example, um, and then you're looking at a points deduction and it may be that a third of the league or different clubs that were in it four or five years, it becomes a lot more difficult to see it as as remedying a sporting advantage. And I, I guess the only big lesson one can learn from that is one needs to try and prosecute these offences as early as possible but that that's not always easy with lawyers like us around the table
1: (laughs) and and ideally have them not happening just towards the end of a season
0: yes it always happens (laughs) always happens and even when you could have retrospective point seductions a lot arose in some of these i mean the the
2: the damage done to the brand um, is is that you often hear Club executives say that the, the, the chief commodity, the best commodity of the Premier League, is is the kind of unpredictability, the the ability of one team to beat another team on any given day, and that is a is a is a is a brilliant thing. But what these charges potentially, if proven, will sh- it will show it completely erodes that because it wasn't a level playing field at all. So, but it's 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 damage done historically, which I don't think a sanction to you know next season's Man City team. That's what it is, or in three seasons time, It doesn't do the job.
0: Well, of course, the answer might be someone else regulating, which I'll come on to in a moment. But, uh, Jeff, um, you, I'm sure, aren't able to talk about current, ongoing EFL proceedings, but in terms of the types of cases you think will be coming up in, in the Football League, the, the types of disputes, what do you identify as the trends?
3: Yeah, well, well, away from the EFL for a second. I think uh, everyone around the room will probably know that FIFA introduced some new regulations uh, relating to agents, uh, and those regulations will need to quickly be um, uh, dealt with by clubs and agents. They will need to comply with those regulations, and inevitably, there's going to be challenges to those regulations. And uh, People around this room, I imagine, may well be involved in that at some point in time. And I think that's going to be a, a really interesting development. And FIFA will need to be equally equipped to deal with those quickly um, and, and to get to the bottom of those issues. And probably amend their rules going forward, um, as, as every regulator will no doubt do. Uh, other than that, I mean, I think in football, there's always going to be trends of of types of cases. There's always going to be an owners and directors test process in some way or another. Um, and there's going to be people that comply with that and people that do not. And therefore, there, there is inevitably likely to be litigation around those cases where people are determined not to meet the test and whatever that test is going forward. And so that clearly is going to be an interesting development. And I know that you'll touch on that later, Nick. Um, I think in the, on the same vein, there's going to be, um, as there always is in, in every season, as we've discussed in, in this room and both James and Eunic have have both been involved in cases about this. There's always going to be financial um, fair play or regulations regarding financial uh, restrictions on the clubs that are always going to be tested. And that's never going to stop, I don't imagine. Um, The rules are there uh, from whatever league, whether it be Premier League or the EFL, um, for good reason. Um, But clubs continuously like to push those boundaries. And that's... Uh, probably never going to stop, um, and so I would, I would think that, as you probably all are aware, in the EFL the uh, the CFRU, so that's the Club Financial Reporting Unit, which was newly created. So the uh, uh, Club Financial Reporting Unit, again, with their new introduction in recent times, they will no doubt become uh, more well known to those around the room and to clubs, and they are providing an important function. Um, to the application of our rules in the EFL. Um, Yeah, I never quite
0: um, understood that new rule, Jeff. whether you you still get a right to a hearing, do you? You're not taking that away
3: yet. Yeah, but there there is a club financial reporting panel that's constituted to to where a club um, feels there is a need to appeal a decision of the uh, CFRU that they can go to the CFRP, either panel, to do so. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I shall, no doubt see you involved in a case in the future
0: (laughs) interesting you say that because um, I would certainly agree you know when when James and I were going around holiday inns in Coventry um, I I don't think either of uh, of us would have expected back then James that the biggest cases that seem to appear in football now are either about financial regulation or they're about the regulation of the owners and directors and takeovers. Those seem to be the, the the big cases. And and that probably leads me on to a question to you, James, about the developments you'll see, and in particular an independent regulator, which, as I understand it, there may be a white paper published tomorrow. We're, we're talking on the 22nd of February today. The government will be proposing the regulator deals with effectively those two things more than anything else and maybe just exclusively financial regulation and owners and directors tests so james what do you think um will be important in relation to that and i'd also be very interested to hear your views about the things that that catherine and others have discussed earlier um the tendency if you think there is one towards greater transparency including public hearings of some disciplinary hearings?
1: Sure. So um, taking, firstly, the whole question of the independent regulator, as you say, uh, it, it's, it's going to be announced tomorrow, as I understand it, and by the Prime Minister uh, of all people. So it's obviously being taken very seriously. If the current reports are anything to go by, it will include a fair bit, actually, of what Tracy Crouch Recommended, So it will include a legislative basis for this independent body, a right to license clubs from the National League upwards, a right to prevent breakaway leagues, which is an incredibly topical uh, issue, and control over the owners and directors' tests. Now, I mean, given I may end up involved and... Uh, <laughs> The subject matter is still slightly uncertain. I won't say too much on the substance, but I think all I would say is this that I think we always need to test all of these proposals against the question is what we're being proposed better than what we already have? Because, you know, change for change's sake, just to respond to. An impression that something needs to be done generally turns out to be a bad idea so uh, i think that's all i would say on that for now and, and actually my own thought as to where we're going and my own personal recommendation for the future is effectively the second thing i would have said during this podcast which is completely against my own interests as a as a barrister which is that i think it's really important that we avoid if we can over legalization of the disciplinary process because you know some of the best disciplinaries I have been involved in in however long it is now 15 years that I've been doing them have been relatively informal hearings where a participant has been heard by a panel not just of lawyers but also former sports people who've been in the same position as the athlete who understand their predicament and who leave the athlete with the firm belief that they've been fairly heard. And, you know, of course, bigger disciplinary cases about financial fair play or whatever it may be will continue to resemble court proceedings. Of course they will. But sometimes the simpler cases don't need to be so legalistic. Uh, And judgment by your peers, I think, is really important. And that potentially, I think, cuts across the the final issue that you asked me about, Nick, which is public hearings in disciplinary cases. Uh, Of course, in the cricket case, there was a quite exceptional public interest in having public access, press access to what is going on, given the nature of the allegations, their importance, not just to the sport, but to society more broadly. But I would be careful what we wish for in terms of larger numbers of public disciplinary hearings in sport. And the reason for that is basically this. In my experience, across all the different practice areas that I've um, worked in, sports cases attract automatically the largest amount of press interest. And that's true even with the smallest of disciplinary matters if they involve a relatively high profile sports person. And with all of that press interest, I am not sure it is really in the interests of an efficient, fair, disciplinary process to have in have real-time reporting in the press of what is going on in a disciplinary hearing of a sports person. It may be fascinating to the press, it may make lots of interesting news on the back pages. But if you ask yourself, does it make for a fairer hearing process. I think we've just got to be a bit cautious about that. Of course, there are cases like the Cricket case which call out for a public hearing, but I'm not sure how many of them, in the end, there actually are.
0: Just, just on that point, James, the, the way I understand Cass has responded to this, and um, this is the response of the Peckstein European mm-hmm. Court of Human Rights decision saying that in certain serious allegations like doping... That can affect an athlete's livelihood and reputation the athlete has a right to a public hearing so the, the way Cass has responded to that is to say it is the right of the athlete so if the athlete doesn't want a public hearing in a doping charge which will often be the case because they don't want people to to hear the evidence uh, it's not a public hearing but it's the athlete's choice does that deal with some of your reservations
1: i think to an extent yeah to an extent it does of course because uh it will very often be the athlete who has the most acute concern about those sorts of issues but equally you know that creates an issue of its own because the fact that an athlete has not exercised their right to have a public hearing in a case that's very closely followed could in itself end up with press speculation about why that is, et cetera. And as I say, I'm not at all opposed to public hearings of sports disciplinary cases where there is a sufficient public interest in favour of it, but I think if it turns into something automatic, I'm just not convinced that we will end up with a better process. There's
0: perhaps one more um, innovation we should mention. FIFA recently came up with a new rule in response to... uh, A very serious case of um, sexual misconduct in Afghanistan, whereby victims, particularly victims, can have standing and representation in in cases, which is somewhat analogous to some of the arguments in the cricket Azim Rafiq case as well. Uh, Do you think we might see more of that in sports disciplinary
3: proceedings? There may well be some room for that. Um, I think there um, has also been some precedent of that. I mean, there there are uh, in the Derby County. Uh, administration, uh, I think it's been well publicised that certain clubs were uh, very interested in certain outcomes in that administration and and certainly registered their interest in certain proceedings um, with the aim of applying pressure for an overall outcome, um, which was effective. Um, And ultimately, everyone involved at the end of it through the process, I think, uh, got to the outcome that they inevitably desired in some way so um, I think there is a there is a a forum for that but I I think equally it needs to be heavily regulated so that it doesn't become a free-for-all it's it's uh, as ever it's got to be carefully uh, considered well
0: I think we've exhausted our time so thank you all very much it's been a really informative and interesting discussion you've been listening to the sports law podcast with me Nick DiMarco of Blackstone Chambers in the next episode sport and the metaverse episode 10 we'll be talking about the fascinating dynamic new area of the metaverse and web 3 and its impact on sport the commercial and legal landscape everything from esports nfts player digital rights ai and also how you have careers in this area so please join me and my brilliant guests etan yankovic head of data at law firm Sheridan's, Tom Grogan, CEO of X Tech, and James King, General Counsel of the PFA, experts in this area who will be joining us to talk about sport and the Metaverse. episode 10 of the Sports Law Podcast. For more information, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, and of course, visit our website at www.blackstonechambers.com.